Welcome back to the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert Hazelton, and I'm your host. Today I'll be talking about a couple of video games, uh, movies, and take a deep dive into some storytelling practices that I employ on a daily basis. We're going to cover that movie Hobbs and Shaw and the Fast and Furious movies in general, the Warhammer gaming franchise, Destiny 2's Solstice of Heroes event, and I'll offer up some thoughts about their upcoming conversion to Steam. I've got a lot to cover, so let's just dive on in. Let's start off with the Warhammer topic. Warhammer, if you don't know, is a product of Games Workshop. There is a far future setting and a fantasy setting. Uh, They have role-playing games and tabletop versions, and naturally, they moved into the video game world. Uh, For a while, they were kind of synonymous with gray games. If something came out from Games Workshop, or was licensed by them, I should say, then generally you were getting a pretty solid game. I can think of a few I absolutely loved. Uh, Dawn of War, set in the Warhammer 40k universe. Great game. Dawn of War 2, another great one. And all the little expansions that came with them, also really, really good. Um, That was kind of back in the heyday of real-time strategy games, though. Uh, Those have sort of fallen out of favor and become a little different. Uh, Things like um, Conan Unconquered and uh, They Are Billions sort of reinvented it uh, for the most part recently. But Dawn of War was more like the old StarCraft-style stuff. And uh, it was just, it it was perfect for that type of game. And it also encompassed what you really come to know as the Warhammer 40k universe, the zealous troops and the crazy stuff they have to say and their over-the-top weapons. Uh, It was just a lot of fun. So then you have games like uh, Dark Omen way back, uh, probably in the 90s, and that was based on the Warhammer fantasy battles where you had big units and they go up against each other. They're fighting on dead and green skins. It was really cool. I mean, totally over-the-top, but very, very cool. A little later on, you get games like Warhammer Space Marine, which didn't get the greatest reviews, but it was still a really fun game for me. I enjoyed the heck out of the uh, the story, and though it was pretty linear, it's still a lot of fun. Uh, even the multiplayer was, was actually really neat. Uh, I initially played that on the Xbox and then uh, got it on the PC. I've even been thinking of streaming the uh, entire campaign once through. It's about an eight-hour uh, experience. Um, And then after we get done with those, we start to move into the shakier time period in the Games Workshop uh, licenses. Now, I was fooled because of the game Vermintide. Warhammer Vermintide is a ripoff of Left 4 Dead. I love the game, but I mean, you can't get away with what they've done and not uh, get accused of borrowing heavily. In fact, I think they they even say it. Uh, for the most part. They use the same AI. They It's horde hordes coming at you. You've got to basically do several objectives. You replay the maps. There is a campaign. Uh, in the original game, you can actually play it in order, whereas in the sequel, it, I, I, I haven't figured out how to do it, if you can. you got five different characters to choose from. Four at any time are with you, whether they're AI players or other players. It's actually a lot of fun. I highly recommend both games. They are just genius as far as how they work and and the character interactions it's great it's it's exactly what that kind of game should be so when that game came out i was under the impression that warhammer was still top of the game enter the game death watch this is a 40k game it's also a little bit like the uh the whole left for dead thing but now you're playing space marines and at first it looked it looks amazing you watch the trailer it looks a lot of fun but once you start playing, 
it really does just sort of lack. For lack of a better term, it's just it just doesn't feel right. Um, it's also not very balanced as far as the difficulty is concerned. The graphics are great, and it looks really neat, and when you get into it, it feels okay. But ultimately, I'd have to say that Mixed Review is about all it deserved. Uh, you've got Space Hulk, which is another game that's based on a board game, and they did a great job of, of giving it that feel. But again, we have balance issues where it comes to things like the rolling. It just it feels terrible. Um, Blood Bowl, consequently, seems to be doing pretty well. I mean, the sequel to that did very well. So then we move into uh, Chaos Bane. That's one of the most recent releases they have. It's sort of a Diablo clone, and it's set in the fantasy world as well. That game, definitely middling, in my opinion. Uh, I gave it a bad review on Steam. The developer actually wrote me and said, hey, we've made some changes. Why don't you go back and try it again? I have to be honest, I don't even see what they did. It pretty much feels exactly the same. They didn't really improve anything. The best way to describe Chaos Bane is anticlimactic. Every time you do something, whether it be level up or finish an objective, nothing really happens. It's like really hard to tell that you've done anything cool. Um, in fact, when you finish an objective, the objective just changes to leave the forest. Even if you're in a room, it just says leave the forest. I felt like it was fairly uninspired. Maybe it needed another six months and it would have been great. Uh, Gothic Battle Fleet came out. I bought that immediately. Sounded really fun. You play basically dreadnought spaceships fighting each other. Once again, great voice acting, uh, cool aesthetic, but the campaign was so terribly balanced. It was just not fun. Uh, Battlefleet 2 came out. I didn't even give that a shot. Now, on the other side, Warhammer Total War. A great game. It's a little bit simplified for a Total War game, but it was still a lot of fun. So, ultimately, they're kind of up and down when it comes to Warhammer titles. You can hit or miss is a better way to put it. Uh, they've got some board games like Mordheim. Um, that game is fun, but it is so slow paced. It just takes forever to do anything. And I got to be honest, I just don't have the patience for that. And that's on me, not on them. All of that, that long preamble comes to this point. Warhammer 40k, Inquisitor, Martyr. It had a very rocky start when it came out. Let me describe this game. It's basically Diablo in the future. It's made by Neocore Gaming, the folks who brought you Van Helsing. You have three characters to choose from, and each of them has a background that determines their skill tree that you start off with. Uh, other than that, it has no bearing on the game. Um, those of you familiar with Van Helsing probably remember it had a pretty rough start in the fact that there was a lot of bugs, some of them game-breaking, some of them progress-preventing, uh, and so on and so forth. I will say that I played Van Helsing way late in its uh, release. In fact, uh, Van Helsing 2 was on the verge of coming out. I got Van Helsing 1 for a great price and uh, got to play it through, and I had a great time. When they announced that they were doing the Warhammer 40k game, I immediately gave them a shot without hesitation. Uh, I picked up the game when it first came out, and oh my goodness, it was just hardcore horrible. Uh, it wasn't that the aesthetics were bad or that necessarily the gameplay was bad in the campaign, but there were other things, such as the co-op. Trying to co-op, it was just a laggy mess. There was no matchmaking, so here I am, come home from work, sit down to play the game. I'm level 5. I get put into a game with a level 15. 
I'm just getting destroyed. I'm not contributing. He's getting blown up because the the mobs have been increased in difficulty thanks to an additional player. It was just really badly thought out. I actually refunded the game and gave it some time to cook. Now, recently in the Steam Summer Sale, it finally dropped down to a price that I was willing to pay, which was like 23 bucks, I think. So I grabbed it. And I started playing it again. This is after their big 2.0 release. They claimed that they made a whole lot of great changes to it. I did see some people complaining about those changes, so I'm not sure if uh, if their concerns were justified or not. But if the prior to 2.0 changes were pretty, or prior to the 2.0 state of game was how it was when I played, then I'm going to have to say they're kind of crazy. Um, because now it's a great game, at least the way I play it. I've been playing the campaign, I've been doing some of the side missions, and there are a ton of side missions. You could pretty much do side missions ad nauseum all over the place, never touch the campaign. Uh, there's a hundred levels, uh, tons of skill trees, lots of theory crafting to do, tons of weapons. I'm having a blast with the game now. Uh, on the 30th, they came out with an expansion, uh, Prophecy, which is standalone, and you can play as a tech priest now, so they added a fourth character class to the game and so far that seems pretty neat too what is very interesting is that neocore continues to come out with a game that has problems at the beginning and then they correct them later on and make the make the game playable i don't really know why that's their business model it seems like they should learn from their mistakes and maybe just let something cook for an extra year uh before releasing it but uh, i guess they like having people pay to beta test their stuff so um, if it works for them why not all around, I would say that uh, if you like Diablo-style games, those action RPGs, then uh, Warhammer 40k Inquisitor might be for you. Um, I would still say that you should get it on sale. The $50 price tag was a little much in my opinion. Now, I will say this, though. The campaign is really long. The other day, I was going to stream the rest of it. I thought I only had a couple missions left. I ended up streaming for four and a half hours, and I still... I still played for another three hours after that, and I haven't finished it yet, so it's actually pretty beefy. Plus, there's a lot of DLC that was fairly inexpensive during the summer sale, like a couple bucks, and each of those added several missions that were actually story-based, so you do have a lot of content if you get into that game. Um, ultimately, I do recommend it. Now, back to the whole point of Warhammer Gaming. I know that there's a lot of titles being talked about. There's some more on the way. There was that ill-fated MMO that just gets wrecked if you go and read the reviews. I don't know what's going to happen with it. It is this huge industry for Games Workshop. I mean, the minis aren't cheap, and they continue to come out with new stuff. There was a role-playing game by Fantasy Flight Games that I really liked. It utilized the old fantasy role-play system, and now there's a new one, Wrath and Glory, uh, by, I think, Cubicle 7, but I don't quote me on that. And um, that one actually looked pretty neat too, but I've already heard some rumors that it might be dying. I, I don't know what's going on there. If you're a Warhammer fan, this is a very strange time to be into the games um, on the computer and the console. Uh, you could you could get great things like uh, Warhammer Total War, or you could get something like Chaos Bane that's just meh. So uh, I don't know. If you have any thoughts about that, I'd love to hear them. Uh, leave a comment. Uh, somewhere, drop us a message and uh, tell us what you think of the Warhammer gaming as it is now. Uh, but that's all I have for that for the moment. So let's talk about a real passion of mine, one that is probably an addiction that I should seek help about, and that is Destiny 2. So I loved Destiny 1. Uh, my friends and I played it on the Xbox uh, when they sort of dwindled. 
Um, I gave it a wide berth for quite some time. And then some folks that I knew at work were way into the PlayStation gaming. They talked me into grabbing a PlayStation to play Destiny with them. And then all of a sudden, Tuesday night just became this great evening of doing the Nightfall and busting out some Crucible and getting things done. It was just awesome. So Destiny 2 was pretty much a no-brainer when it came out. Uh, my friend and I got it on the PlayStation. Unfortunately, the rest of our friends were going to wait. Uh, they were going to get it for PC. But we couldn't wait, so we played it on PlayStation. I didn't have any problems with Destiny 2 when it first came out. and I had a great time. And then when the PC version came out, we had a ton of players running around with us all the time. And it was it was amazing. You know, there was never a moment where we needed to hunt for a group or couldn't get a group activity done. As we got to the end of the content available and started to see some of the expansions coming out, other people's opinions on Destiny 2 changed, became a lot more harsh. I don't think they were necessarily justified, especially considering how many hours of play we got out of the game. But uh, it did turn some of them off to the point where they just stopped playing. Now, I can say this. Next to World of Warcraft, Destiny 2 might well be the game I have put the most consistent amount of time into. I have taken no more than a month off of that game since it came out. I've done, I did the Solstice of Heroes back when it first came out, and that was, the, that was just a brutal grind. Uh, I think it happened right before Forsaken. I really thought that was crazy that they would put out this grindy, horrible quest line right before a new game. I would think they'd want to like generate some more excitement and and get people pumped up for it rather than just grind them down with this, you know, numeric uh, scheme, which is what it basically comes down to. Um, but no, they didn't learn from their mistake, uh, if it was a mistake, because obviously people still play. Um, and so they released a new Solstice of Heroes, which started on July 30th, and it goes until the end of August. And... <sighs> The best thing I can describe it as is spreadsheet gaming. It's almost like they just ran a bunch of metrics against the the database, determined how long each event takes, put it into a spreadsheet, did some math and said, this should hold people over with three characters till the end of the month when we release our new expansion, Shadowkeep. Once I got into the, the green armor step, so you basically Solstice of Heroes is... You get the crappy armor you are wearing at the very beginning of Destiny 2 after the tower is taken. And then you upgrade it all the way up to a purple set and then beyond to get a glow on it. So the first step is the green. And that wasn't too bad. I basically did it in one day, but it was a it was a long game-filled day. Uh, the blue, there was no way I was going to do it in one day, even if I could, because the grind was very real. 50 bounties... 10 gambit matches, picking up 1,500 of these orb things that drop on the ground, on and on and on. Again, just imagine it as a spreadsheet. I had to make one, and that's what you've got. So there's so many better ways they could have pumped up Shadowkeep or even celebrated this Solstice of Heroes. Uh, why not revamp some of the, some of the uh, strikes and throw some money at uh, Nolan North, who does the voice of the ghost, and and give us some story-driven celebration or anything else, I guess, ultimately. I have a whole bunch of theories of what they could have done. They don't really matter. Their choice was this. And what makes me nervous about that is that we're on the verge of them turning it free to play. It's going to move to Steam, and all of the year one content is going to be free to play. And that's 
that's frightening because if they aren't willing to spend money now, are they hoping that they're going to make so much money from Eververse nonsense that they're going to be able to afford to pay for new expansions and, and more voices and that sort of thing? I mean, right now, when they were under the umbrella of Activision, we got garbage expansions like uh, The Curse of Osiris, which was a completely misused opportunity to create Nephilim Rifts. I mean, the Infinite Forest could have easily been exactly like the Diablo 3 Nephilim Rift and given us plenty of time, uh, plenty of things to do. Great way to grind gear. But instead, it was only used for holidays. I don't know what's going to happen. The Solstice of Heroes just shows that they're like in a in a rut of what they're doing. And as they move into this free-to-play realm, I don't really have the confidence that Destiny knows what's going to happen. I haven't really read anything about it. Maybe it's out there. But, I mean, what are they going to do about the server hit from all these new players just rushing in? They no longer have Activision money to support them, if, if ever Activision was throwing money at them. So how are they going to survive in that new environment? And what are they going to do about it? Um, how is Shadowkeep going to keep people going for a set period of time? I know that Armor 2.0 is a great grind. It's a new grind to do different things and, and get different types of drops and stuff. But, you know, the Menagerie thing they came out with in Opulence, eh, I mean, it was okay, but it was very easy to get all of the stuff you needed. It was literally just about time, putting in the time and spending the resources. Then there's this tribute hall thing they've got where you basically just want you to drain all of your uh, planetary resources that you've been hoarding for, uh, you know, however long. And I don't know. All around, I'm very concerned about Destiny. This is somebody, this is from somebody who's put in 1,500 hours into the freaking game. It's an embarrassing number of hours, in fact. So I'm really worried about what's going to happen as they move into the next, uh, to the next iteration of Destiny. Um, I am happy that we're not getting Destiny 3 and that we're going to continue the story. Uh, one thing I'd really love to see them do, I would be happy to even pay for it, is if they would release Destiny 1 as an expansion for the PC. Let us play through all that content again, uh, updated to the new engine, that would be great. Because there are references throughout that they didn't remove from the PC. Uh, Zavala during a strike will say, hey, you killed a god at the Black Garden. Well, I mean, they neutered out all of the references in the PC except for a few things like that. So it'd be really cool if we could actually do all that stuff. Final thing about Destiny that I'm kind of tired of they're cliffhangers that never have a payoff. Uh, we still ha don't really know what happened with the mysterious stranger from Destiny 1. We still don't know what those weird things were that appeared at the end of Destiny 2's campaign. On and on, we just get these hints about stuff, and then nothing happens with them. I'd really like them to shore that up. Anyway, so, Destiny 2. Coming in September, big expansion. Destiny New Light moved to Steam. I'm concerned. I'd love to hear from you. What do you guys think? Anyway, let's move on, and we'll talk about some movies now. So The Fast and the Furious. <laughs> um, you know, it's hard to even talk about The Fast and the Furious without going all the way back. Uh, I remember seeing the very first one in the theater with my dad, and I have to say I, I went because he loves car race movies. I really had no idea what to expect. I certainly didn't think we were going to get a uh, blockbuster movie in the middle of an April about a bunch of 
street racing criminals who were stealing from trucks. But uh, we did. And not only that, but that it would go on to spawn this huge universe of crazy movies. I, I just, you could have held a gun to my head back then. I would have said this will be the only one. And then it just was a runaway hit. And we got Fast and Furious 2 without Vin Diesel. And then Fast and Furious 3 with ridiculous Tokyo Drift and all that foolishness. What is really funny to me about those movies is that after 3, the characters basically become international super spies. I don't know if there was a Udemy course that helped them get to this new level to to aspire past uh, just uh, jacking cars and running street races and all that jazz, but uh, whatever it was, it obviously worked because eventually the guy who used to run street races off a houseboat is going into nuclear submarines and uh, disarming them. So kudos to their career advancement. But around that same time, these basically became comic book movies. They're just superhero movies uh, with cars as the primary uh, method by which we uh, get the characters to do stuff. That comes to the new spinoff, Hobbs and Shaw, and it is absolutely no different. In fact, it even throws its lot in further with superheroes by having a basically genetically engineered Superman uh, that they fight with. It is over the top, and it was a lot of fun. I absolutely loved it. I I won't lie. Those movies are a total guilty pleasure for me. And uh, The Rock and Jason Statham were really fun. They worked very well together. So if you like these action movies, if you like the Fast and Furious foolishness, if you don't really care about physics and how stuff works, because I don't even think Mythbusters is going to waste their time on this one. Um, I would definitely recommend Hobbs and Shaw. Uh, some of the fight scenes are absolutely amazing. There's more fighting in it than in the Transporter, I think. So definitely, if you are into uh, that stuff, go see this movie in the theater at the biggest screen you can. Because it is a spectacle that just has to be absorbed. Um, I don't think you're going to get the same excitement out of it at home. I mean, some of you may have those amazing home theaters that do, but uh, if you've got a big screen nearby, go see Hobbs and Shaw. It was worth it. So in my last episode, I talked about art and entrepreneurial endeavors, and I gave you some tips on how you could uh, get past some of the roadblocks that might be preventing you from getting your projects done. This time, I really want to talk about writing and how to start writing specifically. So a lot of people come to me and ask, how do I get from the point of I have this great idea to putting it on paper? And the thing that I think amateurs fail at the most is that they take their grand idea and that's the first thing they run with. And it's natural because they're very excited about it. They want to see it uh, come to life. Uh, but my advice to these folks is to take a step back, put that idea down, write it down with notes and make sure that you've got all of it secure so that you can come back to it. But the first step to becoming a writer and being serious about it is to really go at it from a uh, from a professional point of view. You want to do a self-assessment, essentially. So write a short story. And it doesn't have to be about dragons and monsters. It doesn't have to be sci-fi. It doesn't even have to be all that great. It just needs to be you seeing what it looks like when you write something down. It should be no more than one to three pages long. 
so that you're not spending a lot of time on this. This is just you getting a chance to see, wow, that's that's my current style. Whether it is great or terrible, that doesn't matter. What it is is you've done something, and now you can actually go at it. Your first step is you take that piece, you put it away. Two days later, you come back at it, and you give it a vicious treatment. You just destroy it as much as you can. Find the parts you failed at. Is your dialogue stilted? Is it is it really ridiculous? Does it sound unnatural? Boom, you know what to focus on. Grab a book on dialogue. I'm going to link some books at the uh, end of this, or on my description of the podcast, so you can find some uh, resources for this stuff. Does it flow poorly? Then maybe you need a book on actual just style. You know, learn that kind of thing. Um, if it is like you read it and you're like, wow, this is so bad, I, I shouldn't do this, stop right there. That's not true. You should do this because you had an inclination to do so. The first step that of, of most artists is to emulate. As a kid, when I first started playing guitar, the first thing I did was grab my favorite songs and try to learn them. The ones that were too hard, I put those off and I'd learn easier ones. And that way I was I was picking up the style that I wanted to represent. And then I would add my own flair to it. I'd change up things a little bit. And then I'd start writing my own material. And that's how I eventually started writing songs. And the same can be done with books. You want to read a book of your favorite author. If you want to write horror novels, then you should read some Stephen King or some Dean Koontz, something like that. Read The Professionals see how they do it, and then emulate that style. You know, if your favorite author writes in three to five sentence paragraphs and they're really quick, then you should be doing the same thing. Try it in your your one to three page story. See if that helps. Start to think like those authors. Really understand why they made the decisions they did. You have to start reading critically. It, it, it can't always be that you're reading for fun at the point that you want to be a writer. You have to start really paying attention to what it is you're reading, whether it's a novel or if maybe you want to write true life stuff, maybe you want to be a journalist, really read those news articles beyond the content and start looking at the format and the and the setup. How did they come about it and what did they have for it? That is how you're going to get to the next level. So once you've sort of identified your pain points, the next step is to study to find study materials that speak to you, whether they're books or Udemy courses or Skillshare, whatever it may be, find those courses, take those courses. They're not really that long. If you go to a Udemy course, they're usually no more than a few hours long. You should be able to fit those in. I know that there's a lot of questions about those master classes you can get with the big celebrities. I have master class, and I can tell you that it is inspirational on one hand, but on the other the only way I really learned anything from some of these is because I was really paying attention to what was going on in the background during some of their demonstrations. For example, the photography one. I learned more about gear, but not because the instructor explicitly told me about it, but because I listened to what was happening during the uh, sample shoots. Uh, so keep that in mind that Masterclass is more about inspiration. You really need to find how to to get to the point that you're addressing what you found in your self-assessment that you didn't like. Once you have done that, then you go back and you write it again. Maybe you write a little bit of a different story so that you keep it fresh, but then you see, did I fix my problems? Are they better now? Did I actually learn something? Was that worth the time? And keep doing that until you feel good about it. Expand the length of the story the next time. See if you can write a 10-page piece. Uh, 10 pages is quite a bit. 
for some people. And when you do that, each time you're going to have an accomplishment on top of that. It may not be something you share with other people, but you personally know you can finish things. Uh, it's about taking steps. You don't want to, uh, what do they say, boil the ocean. You want to just take it in, in incremental steps until you are to the point that you can take that grand idea that got you on this adventure in the first place and bring it to life. One of the things that I see amateurs complain about the most when they come to me, either for ghostwriting or to talk about how to, uh, how, to, how to bring their work to life, is that they took their best idea and they decided that that is how they were going to start and they were going to just jump in and write a 50,000-word novel as their very first thing they ever did. And they're very frustrated and they're just incapable of getting past the fact that maybe they bit off more than they can chew. I have advised a lot of these folks, and a few of them have actually taken the advice to heart, stepped back, and created things that I found to be quite quite good. Uh, when they presented their first draft to me, I will be honest, it was bad. And then they came back after I gave them advice and helped them tear it down a little bit in their own minds, and it started to get better. It's not an overnight thing. No art ever is. You have to practice it. You have to build upon what you learn each time. I can tell you right now, just the other day, I pulled out one of my books to ensure some continuity, and I was just embarrassed at how bad it is. And that's going to happen to you your whole life. Neil Gaiman just talked about one of the best things to do is to publish the work, look back on it, find what you did wrong, and fix it for the next time. That's not to say you don't edit it. It's not to say you don't write a second draft. But continually rewriting the same thing is never going to, to make you make you better. It will make that piece a little better, but eventually you're going to just sterilize all the style right out of it. The idea is to take what you learned from this project, move it on to the next one. So that's sort of an overview on how to really approach and get into writing. It's a, it's a big and crazy world, and it's, it's got so much competition. And a lot of that competition is people who are perseverant enough to write the 20, the 30, the 50,000 word novel, and then just publish it on Amazon because there's no safeguard for quality. And that's where you get these books that have like 10 one-star reviews or no reviews at all. And it's because they just decided, hey, I got this. And they were able to put in the time to write it out, but they didn't take the time to really become a writer. They just, they just, regurgitated their idea and they they said I'm good and maybe they even wrote it 10 10 more times but if you really want to be serious about this if you really want to be a person who creates things that you're going to be proud of to put your name on then you really need to address this as a professional topic or as a very serious hobby and study it grab those source materials again look at my uh, links in the description and they will have some great books for you and you can get started the right way Maybe you're a musician and you want to tackle something like a concept project. Uh, think Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime or The Who's Tommy. Uh, maybe the first half of 2112 by Rush or Within Temptations, The Forgiving. Unforgiving, excuse me. And if you think about those, they're basically, some of them are just songs that are strung together by a comic topic. Uh, such as the Unforgiving by Within Temptation, uh, they erred on the side of catchy song versus ensuring that it was a big story arc. Whereas you get uh, The Who's Tommy, which was turned into an actual musical, or you know the 2112 from Rush, which is actually a 
full-length, 22-minute-long song, essentially, with different parts, movements, if you want to get classical about it. Um, but let's take Operation Mindcrime as sort of a, a study a study subject. Uh, Queensryche establishes the world they're building right off the bat uh, through the uh, beginning two tracks, which are sort of instrumental with samples over them. Um, they let you know that it's the Cold War, uh, they talk about televangelists being big money. Um, they're also scandalous. There's politicians up to no good, that kind of thing. You sort of get the impression that the narrator is disillusioned and he's fed up with the direction of the world. He really wants to see some kind of big change, and he's willing to be part of it. So uh, they spend the first few songs really establishing that stuff sucks, this guy's pissed, and he's ready to go to town. He meets somebody who's in, willing to enable him to do it. And from there, we start the downward spiral of this person who was just an idealist down to the fact that they're a raving criminal who has murdered several people. I'm not even going to talk about Operation Mindcrime 2. If you want to hear about that from me, if you want to hear my, my thoughts on it, uh, leave me a comment and I'll talk about it some other time. Anyway. One of the important things about writing a concept CD is to sort of know that you're doing it ahead of time rather than just start writing songs and go, wow, you know what, these actually sound really cool together. Let's let's create a concept CD. One of the parts that's really fun about a concept CD, and you can see that in Dream Theater's Scenes from a Memory, is when you get recurring musical themes throughout the CD or production, if you will. And that really drives it home. I did that personally with the Carnival of the Poisoned Rose. Um, I started it out because I wrote a single piece that was very carnival-oriented. And I thought, you know, it'd be a lot of fun if I did a whole CD that really revolved around this carnival. And then I created the three storylines that make up the CD. One being the character who is the uh, trapeze artist who falls to her death. Uh, one being the carnival owner who has the curse of people who want to leave end up dead. And then, of course, there's the soldier character who goes to the carnival, sees it, falls in love with the character who's just about to die, and then goes off to war and almost dies himself. And each of these characters experiences dramatic change from the beginning to the end, just like a novel would. Uh, the big difference is, is that as you're writing a musical uh, production like this, your songs are essentially the chapters, and they really do need to carry the, the reader or the listener from the beginning uh, just like a novel would. They need to establish the stage, they need to give them the meat of the plot, and then they need to have a climax. Uh, this is where, and I know I was said I wasn't going to get into Mindcrime 2, but this is where Mindcrime 2 failed the most, is that the last couple tracks just go out with a whimper. It's not like in Mindcrime 1 with Eyes of a Stranger, which just kicks you in the face with how powerful it is. It just dies. So... I really was under the pressure to make a big climactic ending with Carnival of the Poisoned Rose, and that's my, my song, Darkness and Light, which, to this day, I can't listen to it without crying. I decided that it's time to move on and do another one of these, and this time I, I approached it with a little bit more uh, planning, and so the new CD is called Eternity, and it's actually coming out soon. We're almost done with it. And it's basically a, a more mature version of this concept CD. Took everything I learned from studying things like Mind Crime, Scenes from a Memory, 2112, Hemispheres by Rush, and I, I incorporated it into, into this work. I'm bringing in aesthetics from different kinds of music 
So I have really listened to things like The Phantom of the Opera and uh, Sweeney Todd and, and captured those feelings that I got listening to those pieces and tried to incorporate them into the lyrics and the music. So when you're doing it, you really do need to be sitting down and planning out those songs. Where does this song fit? So the problem is, is that when we write music, we tend to just be diddling around on whatever instrument we play, and then that becomes a song. And that can't really be the way it works when you're doing a concept CD. It has to be more focused, and you have to actually almost demand creativity when when maybe you don't necessarily have it. There's been three times I've come out to write a specific song and just failed outright and just had to pack it in, you know, two hours wasted to where I just basically jammed out and came up with nothing. And you have to be comfortable with that because you need to stay true to your concept. So always go back to the concept. Always go back to your thesis of the project and ensure that you are meeting it. If you're not, if you just write a great song, put it aside. You can release it in some other method. Don't force it to fit your concept. Do what you need to do. Connect the stories together. The songs will become your your chapters. And at the end, you will, uh, you'll definitely have what you're looking for. Like I said about writing earlier, this is all about practice. Uh, my first attempt was the Carnival of the Poison Rose. I'm not unhappy with it. I really wish I would have done it now with better technology and a better understanding of, of just music in general. But I still like what I did. And I, I still go back and listen to some of those songs and, and really love them. And I think that if you can really approach it from the same sort of perspective of creating outlines and really building on your skill set, you're going to have a great product from this. So that's it for this time. Thank you very much for listening to the show. I appreciate you stopping by. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more, please be sure to check out our website and keep track of the schedule. You can find us at www.societycasefiles.com or www.roberthazelton.com. Don't forget to follow or support the project at ko-fi.com slash societycasefiles. Thank you very much. Have a great day.